This podcast was made possible by the ALF Network, with a special thanks to our Leadership Circle members and our 2020 Exemplary Leadership Award sponsors, Aris Communications, Friends of Sing Kung, Friends of Webb McKinney, Lisa and Matt Sonsini, HP Inc., and Deloitte. We thank you all for your support. Welcome to The Dialogue. I'm Suzanne St. John Crane. Good afternoon. Uh, welcome. Welcome to a conversation with Edgar Villanueva. We're just delighted to have you here today. And I'm going to introduce him real quick here. Edgar Villanueva is a globally recognized expert on social justice philanthropy. Edgar serves as chair of the board of directors of Native Americans and Philanthropy, NDN Collective, and is a board member of the Andrus Family Fund a national foundation that works to improve outcomes for vulnerable youth. Edgar currently serves as senior vice president at the Schott Foundation for Public Education, where he oversees grant investment and capacity building, uh, supports for education justice campaigns around the uh, United States. Edgar's the award-winning author of Decolonizing Wealth, a best-selling book offering hopeful and compelling alternatives to the dynamics of colonization in the philanthropic and social finance sectors. And he earned this award, Edgar, I think this is the best part of your bio, frankly, which is you earned from the Inside Philanthropy Awards, 2018 Most Radical Philanthropy Critic. All right. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> Welcome, Edgar. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Uh, and I'm honored to be in community with you all today. Excellent. Excellent. So I like to start off, uh, I'd like to start off this, this conversation with an exercise we do in ALF, which is who are your people? Who do you identify with? I love that. Um, actually, my people, um, I'm from the Lalumbee tribe in North Carolina, and we actually say, who's your people? Um, whenever we meet someone new, it's, it's very much a part of our tradition. We even sell those t-shirts, so I love that you guys are doing that. Um, so yeah, my people are Southern. Uh, my people are Native American. Um, my, my chosen family are folks who, lots of folks who work in the nonprofit sector, philanthropy, folks who are working uh, to, uh, in the struggle for racial justice in this country. Um, and um, I am also, I live in Brooklyn now. Uh, so my, this is Lenape land and my people here are lots of um, black and brown and, and white folks who are also a part of this struggle as well um, that I that I uh, call my chosen family. Love it, thank you. Thanks for sharing that with us. Now, I read your book, not everyone here has certainly, but um, your journey in the foundation world brought big learnings and hard lessons. And I was riveted by it just, you know, from a, as a storyteller and I love the story, the art of storytelling. I thought it was just so beautifully written as well and very honest and raw. For those of, that haven't read the book, Decolonizing Wealth, what's, what are the key takeaways? What's the abridged version? <laughs> well, no, I appreciate, I appreciate you highlighting the storytelling part of it because I, you know, I felt like the last thing we needed was just another like academic critique or, you know, uh, textbook about philanthropy. There are plenty of those that existed. I really did want to share uh, what my personal experience had been as uh, a Native American, as a person from the South. Um, I'm also a gay man. So coming from these different types of identities, 
um, and finding myself working in a very unusual space, the space of philanthropy um, 16 years ago where there was uh, absolutely a lot less diversity at that time than you might find now. And um, I, I think um, for me, the book is sort of a love letter. I, I was, uh, I did win the award for the most radical uh, critic of philanthropy. Um, but I very much love the nonprofit sector. I love the work of philanthropy. And uh, because I do care so much, I felt like I needed to bring certain truths to light and, and to really push us as a sector to do better. Because I mean, philanthropy is just a space where there's so much resources and so much power and potential to do more. And um, I got frustrated over the course of my career with the, the status quo and, and the lack of um, willingness to um, kind of move beyond that. And so I tell my story of uh, working, uh, being who I am working in this space, and I bring in the stories of, of other women, people of color, folks from marginalized backgrounds who found themselves also working and interacting with philanthropy. <laughs> It's about where it hurts in the first part of the book, like we where the, where the pain is and um, where the, the pain is that's connected to wealth uh, because we have a certain history in the US, particularly uh, of colonization. And then when you look back at uh, you know slavery, um, those types of um, horrible industries that kind of built our economy in America, we have to be honest about some of that. And so looking present day with, with the wealth that we sit on in America, or if you're in philanthropy like me, I'm a steward of this wealth that I have to um, acknowledge the history of what, what, what has happened behind that wealth and bring that analysis into our work. And it just so happens that philanthropy not so different from a lot of sectors, but um, I think there's some uniqueness to this sector being especially um, white, a, a major lack of diversity. Um, also, um, when we look at uh, giving and who benefits and receives philanthropy in this country, we find only eight to 10% of philanthropy goes to communities of color. And so there's a major disconnect for me from the message and, and what we put out and the marketing campaigns of philanthropy and what I actually saw happening in community um, that I wanted to name. And let's talk about the complexities of that and the contradictions of that and see if there's a way that we can move forward um, in a better way. Um, it's ultimately um, a, a call to a process of truth and reconciliation and, and bringing us all to a place and a conversation for collective healing. Yep, I appreciate that. When you say it's a love letter, I mean, sometimes it's tough love, right? That we have to say <laughs> and we have to call out. Absolutely. What do you, so you talk about, you know, the title of the book, Decolonizing Wealth. And I know in talking with some of my compadres, it's very, that, that in itself is very provocative. You know, what does that mean? And we're going to get into this too in just a minute about what people feel is rightfully theirs and earned and, and they want to choose how to give it away. But before we jump to that, I think, Talk to us a little bit about what de what do you mean by decolonizing wealth, and what why do you think it's important to understand colonization? Isn't that ancient history? Um, and you even call out yourself as having the colonizer virus. So just expand on that line of thinking for us. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, you know, honestly, decolonizing wealth was not the title, the working title that I had in my head as I was writing the book. You know. Um, I had something that was probably uh, a lot more uh, loving <laughs> and, and sound or maybe more widely accepted. 
when we market tested the title um, and mixed with a bunch of uh, like a, a series of titles, mm-hmm. uh, my favorite title was the, the least favorite of the general public <laughs> and decolonizing <laughs> wealth, which had was like by far the, the lead. And so that's the title that we went with. Um, but yeah, I think the, the like the colonizing um, or decolonization is it's becoming more and more kind of this this household word. Uh, you know, we're decolonizing everything now. We're decolonizing our diets. We're decolonizing education. Decolonizing fashion. It's become quite in vogue. Um, and uh, part of that, I also give credit to the Black Panther that movie because they talked about colonizers in there. So that that helped mainstream sort of that word in some ways. Um, but yeah, I, I recognize that decolonization is, is sort of a hulk of a word that can be sort of intimidating or scary, and it actually does probably mean different things to different people. To understand what decolonization means, you have to actually kind of start with colonization because decolonization is obviously the process of undoing colonization. When we think about colonization, colonization is something that started in the US, you know, 500 years ago, um, that was this very like horrific, brutally violent force that just swept through, um, you know, this country that killed everything in its path that was not, um, that was not about, you know, any, anything that was different, anyone that was different in the effort to um, take, a, take control, to dominate, to, um, to, and to hoard resources, right? And so we think of colonization kind of in a romanticized way. I did too. I mean, I grew up, you know, North Carolina, I was taught Christopher Columbus, you know, the wild, wild west, the gold rush. So we have this romanticized like view around what colonization mm-hmm. actually is. But the truth is, it's, it was a super violent, horrific thing that happened. And uh, I call uh, I, this term, the, deco- the colonizer virus, um, really comes into play because when we think about the history of colonization, it's not just what started happening you know, 500 years ago, but it, it's a, an act or a force that's still very much at play. Um, and sometimes in more subtle ways, we actually do have, you know, we're still separating families and putting kids in cages and doing all types of horrific uh, things in this country that are connected to uh, accumulating wealth, right? And connected to um, uh, oppression and maintaining power. But we also see colonization happening in more subtle ways in our, in our policies and in our systems. And it's so normal to us because we, we were all, you know, this, this is just where we live and we've just assimilated and, and we think of these things as normal. Um, when we think about, uh, you know, uh, our public education system, for example, for me, that's just a clear example of the colonizer virus at play. The way we fund public education, who has great schools, who has the resources and who does that? It's like, boom, right there, you can see the colonizer virus in those policies and in that system. Um, I say that I'm affected with the colonizer virus because we all are, because we've all, you know, we've, we've drank the, the water, we breathe, we have taken in the air. When we think about um, what has been taught to us and what we have to unlearn, um, you know, it's, it's really this idea that, that whiteness and, and for relatives on the phone who are white, when I talk about whiteness, I don't mean white people, you guys are, you're our relatives. I'm talking about this false ideology 
of mm -hmm. white supremacy, which is not a real thing. Somebody created that and made that up, right? That is the enemy that we're trying to dismantle. It's, it's not about white people, but we've all internalized these ideas of white supremacy. And it, you know, um, when we look at um, how, who we esteem as experts, when we look at the standards for beauty um, in our country, when we think about who controls um, the, uh, the books we read, the music that goes out, who controls the resources, there's still a white dominant mindset around that, um, that we've all internalized. And myself as a Native American, I absolutely uh, did my best to assimilate towards whiteness because of the racism of my own family. You know, I tried to sit at that table and to comb my hair a certain way and to show up in my leadership in a way that I was taught was the dominant way of leading. You know, I went to a man graduate school management program where they were like, you need to wear the white shirt and the wingtip shoes, right? And so all of this like learning, <laughs> learning assimilation to um, you know, to, to this dominant way of being that is not serving me well or, or serving uh, anyone well. And so decolonization is like, how do we undo all of this, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think of decolonization as a, as a, a political act where literally, um, you know, like uh, descendants of, of settlers need to like go back to their country's origin or anything like that, right? The, the reality is we are all here together now. It's the 21st century. Our families are interconnected. Our businesses are interconnected. And so what decolonization means for me is like looking back at history, acknowledging what has happened, acknowledging the trauma that remains in communities, including white communities because of our history of colonization and violence and thinking about how we can collectively heal from that. So decolonization for me is, is almost synonymous with healing. It's saying we can't undo slavery, we can't undo colonization, we can't undo genocide and the taking of land, uh, but what we can is at least acknowledge the reality and the truth of what has happened and take collective ownership and responsibility for that and engage in a healing process together so we can all move forward and thrive. Thank you so much for that explanation. I think that's really helpful. And even talking about the title of this event with some of my colleagues, right? It was like, oh, do we want to use that word? And so we opted for money as medicine, which is the softer choice, which is fine. Whatever gets us here. Have a, have that a, was the working title of my book. <laughs> what was that? Was it? That was the working title for my book. I like that. I have a journal coming out on December the 1st that is called Money as Medicine. So we'll get, okay, we'll, there we we'll, we'll have that. But <laughs> I hope that people feel more comfortable about decolonization now that now that we've kind of unpacked that a little bit. <laughs> well, and let's, let's talk about the discomfort a little bit, right? So, I mean, in ALF, we have so many, <laughs> I just have to say, I've had some really amazing conversations over the last month. In, part in particular, ones that have given me migraines, ones that have given have enlightened me, and um, it's you know because we are in the dialogue business of dialogues across difference. I mean, some of those conversations are about the color of law, that book, and just redlining, and and because of you know federal law, you know communities of color could not gain generational wealth; they couldn't get a loan to buy houses up until the time when I was born, right? And I'm not that old, right? How is this, how did this happen without us knowing it? And then you have this other side. I've spoken to conservative and liberal leaning elders whose families came here to the US on a dime, built everything from scratch and believe that everyone has an equal shot at the American dream. And to those that are, you know, I've had conversations with and really heard the lived experience 
of those poor white communities riddled with addiction, resentful of the talk about reparations or truth and reconciliation. There's so much fear about who's gonna take away my power. Um, what do you say to people who are fearful that your frame or your way of thinking will lead to more taxes or having to give up what they've rightfully earned? What do you, what do you say to that? Yeah, it's a really fair question. Um, I think that it's ultimately, it, 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 when, we, when we start talking about equity, um, and equity is this buzzword now that we kind of throw around, we have to understand that equity is means something different than equality. Equality is, is a good thing, right? Like it, it's, it's a great thing, but equity is something that's different. Equity is a means to achieve equality. And so if we're gonna get to equality where we all have the same thing, uh, we have to um, operationalize equity. And equity actually, um, the, when I think of equity, I think of the word ownership, right? Like how much equity do you have in your house means how much do you own versus the bank, right? And so what's really hard for people when it comes to equity be, is, is the idea that you are actually having to give up something. You are gonna have to give up some power. You may have to give up some resources if we're going to get to a place of, of true uh, equality. And if you've been privileged, if you've had uh, the vast share of the power and the resources, for you, equity may feel like oppression at some level, but it's going into that process recognizing that we're all gonna be okay. And that um, colonization, one of the byproducts of colonization is a scarcity mindset that we've internalized, thinking that we don't have enough, we need more and more and more, and we've got to hold this and this is ours. Uh, we've got to shift from ownership uh, at an individual level to thinking about ownership of resources at a communal level, right? That that we all have more than enough and that we can, we can give more so that others can catch up to where we are. And, um, you know, and I'm not putting aside the idea that folks have had have worked really hard to get what they have, right? And their grandparents and who have worked hard and passed things down and those types of, that, that is uh, absolutely a real thing. But we also have to acknowledge that, um, that white folks in America have had a boost, right? And this is a country where anyone can become anything. Um, but if, if a person of color transcends all these things to become something <laughs> they've they've had to transcend a uh, you know generations of, of policies and practices and bias systems that have worked against us. When I think of Native Americans, for example, my community, my grandparents' generation, not that long ago, kids were taken away from the families and put into Indian boarding schools and not allowed to speak the language and punished under the mantra of kill the Indian, save the man. And so very recent in my, in my generation, are we still grappling with that, that very recent trauma, right? That, um, you know, uh, of being um, harmed in that way. So the trauma is, is really real and, and poverty, you know, to have this idea that there's an equal playing field and that if we all work hard and do all the things that we're going to achieve greatness, is, it's really just not realistic because the fact is in this country that, that poverty is the product of public policy and theft. And so there have been intentional policies, even some policies that have been favorable for some, like the GI Bill that helped create the middle class in this country, 
um, there were um, large groups of people of color who did not qualify for those benefits, right? So mm -hmm. even those well-meaning intentional policies still had exclusions for people of color baked into them. And so poverty, uh, it was, was created by policy where it has boosted some groups and pushed some groups down and then theft. We had wealth in indigenous communities. We had wealth in black communities that, that was taken away. And so, and then of course this, this policy and this theft has all been facilitated by white supremacy. So that's my magnet that I wanna get made. Poverty is the product of public policy and theft facilitated by white supremacy. And that's just something that we have to understand. And so it's not about discounting your hard work if you're a white person or the hard work of your family. Like I totally recognize that and that there's value in that. And you should feel very proud of that. But we have to recognize that that happened in this context of a country which has had um, bias built into um, opportunity that has privileged uh, white folks historically. Thank you for that, Edgar. I want to, um, money's a sensitive subject, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's touchy, <laughs> which is why I love your framing of money as medicine. As it reminds me, actually, when I, when I was writing this, I was thinking, oh, when I had early fundraising training, right? When I was uh, early <laughs> in my career and it was, you're helping somebody do something good with the money, with your, you know, with their money. It's, um, it's, it's, it can be healing. Do we need a new relationship with money as a culture or maybe with each other? I'd say each other. I mean, the, the thing is money is just not even a real thing, right? Kind of like when you think about it, money is a proxy. It was something that we created as humans and we have given money its power. And mm -hmm. so it, it is about money, right? At the end of the day, but what is it? It's paper. It's like zeros and ones on the computer, it's really more about how how we have empowered it and how we esteem money over people. And mm -hmm. so I think if we can have a paradigm shift in how we value and center each other in relationships, that's going to impact how we use our resources because anything can be sacred. I say that money is medicine and that money can actually be sacred if it's used um, in, in a, for, towards a sacred purpose. It doesn't have to be scary or uncomfortable, but money is a tool. And if you use that tool to help repair the harm that it's done, um, to help restore balance, to help facilitate healing, then it can actually be something that is, is sacred and, and it's being used for like a life-giving purpose. And so it doesn't have to be, um, uh, you know, really uncomfortable to talk about. It's if you have money, what a fantastic opportunity you have to, to use money as a tool to help uh, get at some of the solutions and the healing that we need in this country. Wonderful. Thank you. You know, so we're in a time of just huge reckoning in regards to race. And we're also seeing that philanthropy is struggling to be an effective part of this reckoning. Uh, this is tough. This is tough, as you talk about in your book. Uh, we've seen family foundations fold up shop and pull away from the table and push too hard, uh, even locally. So if these foundations are a part of funding the solutions, how do we keep them at the table? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I, I think that philanthropy foundations, corporations, like all of us, like we, we have to get to a place of truth and and, and you know, philanthropy has, I think, in some ways, been. Um, it's almost like the emperor has no clothes. Is how I feel sometimes because we we talk about our work um, and in, in such a way like we're disconnected from 
corporate America are disconnected from other places and that we're self-righteous right. about what we do. <laughs> and the truth yeah. is, you know, uh, philanthropy exists in this country because of, uh, because of capitalism, because of wealth inequality, if you want to look at it from, from that um, point of view. And so it's, it's really about, it, there's a reckoning that has to be done. Um, I think if people want to uh, take their money and run, then they absolutely have the right to do that. But money that is being used for a charitable purpose, I think that any anyone who's getting a major tax write-off because they're putting money into a donor advice fund or they're putting money uh, into a foundation, those funds therefore become, uh, you know, the property of the public. They should demonstrate public benefit. Um, I think it's anyone's prerogative to use their charitable dollars in the way that they see fit. Um, I do think they need to be used though. I, don't, I think they should not be allowed to be uh, stored up in coffers forever. And we don't have a lot of uh, regulation around donor advised funds, for example, where you can start, start a foundation there, um, get a big tax write off and those funds never see the light of day. Um, I think that any, uh, any funding that is supposed to benefit the public should benefit the public. I'm just saying that doing so also in a way that respects um, the, the history of the contributions of people of color in this country and building wealth should be something a, a lens that we bring to our giving uh, as well. Mm -hmm. So it's not our job to keep people comfortable in terms of philanthropy and how they're, um, but it's their money, right? And so yeah, how do is, we, right. it's just, it's a tough thing. It's a Absolutely. tough Absolutely, it's not our job to keep them comfortable. Um, <laughs> it's definitely not been your job <laughs> there's some great questions. some great uh, great questions coming in the chat folks we're going to get to those in just a second keep them coming i only have a couple more here for you edgar and then we're going to switch gears um so it is clear that community organizing is needed now more than ever as we respond to the disproportionate impact of COVID in our communities as well as the growing Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, there's just so much up in terms of uh, grassroots organizing and possibility for change. And from your vantage point, how should philanthropy engage with supporting community organizing as a path to impact? Um, I think it should be like super engaged in supporting community organizing and, and movement building. Um, there's always been this like reluctance in the, the field of philanthropy to support advocacy work and, you know, to, to get political. Um, and of course, there are a real, you know, firewall, um, you know, uh, laws against how far you can go. But in general, you can go pretty far. Um, I, I think that we we need to be putting as, as much resources as we can behind supporting uh, community organizing and the work of social movements. Um, wealth is political. Philanthropy is political. Anyone who um, says so otherwise, I think, is being a little bit disillusioned because everything is political. Um, I think that we, you know, we, we can support uh, charitable activities and, and we should, especially in light of COVID where there was so much direct support just needed to pay rents and people needed food and medicine. But ultimately philanthropy has the opportunity to invest in systemic change to help uh, get at the root causes of a lot of this stuff, right? We can't, we can't give our way out of uh, these problems. We've got to at some point address the root causes and fund advocacy and fund organizing to change, to change the rules. Um, and um, 
we, we've seen there's research that show that investing resources, reinvesting money in advocacy yields a higher return on investment than just funding direct services. Because, you know, we can change the laws that, um, that are um, holding people back um, or folks, then we can definitely um, see people um, prosper, a larger number of people prosper. And um, if anything, um, with this election, regardless of what side you may be on, um, we saw um, beautiful leadership happening on the ground. And uh, at, the, at the end of the day, we can uh, call out names and, and have uh, people seen as messiahs or saviors or leaders in this. But what really changes the game are just everyday people on the ground who are organizing and getting out the vote and, and uh, talking to their family members and, and showing up in that way. And that's how real change happens. And philanthropy has failed to, or to, to really um, invest in that type of work in the way that it really should. Um, and, uh, but that, that's where, that's how we see real change happening is by investing in the building of power in communities to, uh, to win. I'm excited to say that last week I was actually moderating a panel with Magnify Community, a local organization here about this, right? About, and really highlighting a few grassroots organizers, leaders, organizations that are working to empower community members. So I think it's up. I think it's just up and pe more people are talking about it, which is great. That's awesome. You know, you referenced something though that I think is really important to, um, to a thread to pull on here, which is our roles, right? As individuals, as civic leaders, as um, leaders of corporations and, and uh, organizations. I mean, we all have roles in making decisions about how public dollars are spent. We pay taxes, we uh, vote on ballot measures, right? Um, you know, we vote for elected officials who can support uh, uh, or we can pressure them on how to use tax dollars. And our, comp our, our companies and businesses may even work to promote or block ways in their lobbying, right, of how dollars are spent. So here, here's a big question. Where do we begin when it comes to shifting are thinking from the good of the ego system to the good of the ecosystem? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, you know, I, I think it's when we begin to realize that focusing the, the individualism way, you know, idea of individual, individualism, that, that way is not serving us well will turn to another way. And I think this is a challenge that we have in America in particular, because we do have these values of individualism, right? And America is like a really young country. I think we're still experimenting with some things uh, here, but um, you know, we, we, we have this tendency in our culture for whatever reason to be, you know, very much focused on ourselves to build you know, fences and walls and disconnect from, from our, from communities in a way that is not serving us well. And if there's anything that we, we learned through this pandemic, for me, I, I really um, was just reminded of our common humanity because we were all impacted, right? We're, like COVID has not, uh, you know, had any respect of persons. And I think that it's, there was something about what we've been through over the past several months that's like helping us tap into that, that realization of our common humanity. And that is really the thing that is going to, um, to, to help us shed this, I, this, this individualism uh, mindset to one that's more communal. I think that part of the emptiness that I sometimes feel in our culture 
is that we've had this forced assimilation, whether you've been, you know, a part of the American culture for generations, or if your family's relatively new, there's something about American culture that like, um, wants to like push you to erase everything else and only be American. And I love America. I'm a proud American. I'm very patriotic, but I'm also other things. I'm also Native American. I have like cultural values and things there. And I think that's part of what makes America great is because we do have this, um, all of these identities. And one thing that I say to leaders, that I think is an important thing for you to do. If you don't know where you came from, we started this with who's your people. I'm asking who's your people and where did you come from? Because we all need to know beyond who we are today and, and beyond maybe our parent generation, we, you, should, you should actually do the work to understand where your family came from and what did your ancestors believe? We call them original instructions in my culture. What are your original instructions? Mm -hmm. When you go back far enough, often you'll find that regardless of where you're from, your people are probably connected to the planet. They were probably tribal in a lot of ways. They were probably communal. And these are um, characteristics that for generations and generations and generations, people have known are the way that this is the way we need to be in order to survive. And somehow or another in our young country, we've kind of like pushed all that out and we have this new idea. And I don't know if it's serving us well. I think we've got to find ways to tap back into those original instructions that actually live on in our bodies. And that's what I've been doing. Like, I didn't just like wake up to this. I, I when I was writing the book, I spent time talking in my community. I was like, this isn't serving me well. What I'm trying to do, I'm trying to lead in this way. Uh, I'm feeling like I'm not making a difference. I spent time in my community talking to elders, like remind me, teach me the way that your grandparents used to do it. How did they see the world? What was our responsibility as leaders? How, how did we take care of each other? And these things sound so simple, but honestly, we have lost our way. And um, this pandemic has um, exacerbated that at some level because we can't even be together. If we see someone on the sidewalk, we walk the other way out of, out of safety, right? But yeah. we've got to tap into our humanity at some level and, and remember those original instructions and be proud if you're American, but also be proud of the other things um, and that long history that you're holding in your body. Appreciate that. Some great questions coming in the chat and I'm going to switch to asking some of these now. Thanks for taking mine though, Edgar. Um, one that I want to, I want to just call out quickly because it's been, or first I should say, because it's been asked a couple of times now is about what would a truth and reconciliation process look like from your view? Um, I, I, I love thinking about this. So many countries have had them. I, I would love to see a process happen at the federal level for there to be a commission. We can look at Canada, we can look at uh, South America, we can look at Germany. Um, these are countries who have done it. Things are not perfect there by any means, right? But um, I do feel like uh, I've spent a lot of time in Canada and there's just something about, um, there's like this general awareness of the history and you know we're not trying to dispel myths about things that happened a long time like people are like this is the truth of what has happened and so as leaders in the community you can take that truth and do with it what you want um, to try to repair to try to do programming to support so right. I would love to see a federal uh, situation happen where we had a commission that was comprised of uh, you know, indigenous, black and white folks to, to lead this process and to hold spaces across this country for people to air their grievances. Um, 
truth and reconciliation processes are very, very heavy and sad and dark. It's not anything that's like exciting to do. Um, and so I think that's one reason we kind of step away from it, but I do think they're necessary. In the United States, there was a truth and reconciliation um, commission in the state of Maine. Um, there's a documentary ab uh, about it called Dawnland, which is like phenomenal. And even for me, I talk about these things a lot, but as I watched that documentary, I was reminded of, of how painful um, the process is for people of color who might be sharing their story for the first time and for um, white folks hearing the stories and being a part of it as well. But I do think that it's an important, if we are serious about healing and we wanna get to the other side of this mess, as a country, I think it's something we've got to we've got to walk into that dark space together in order to get to a better place. Yeah, absolutely. I want to ask fellow ALF National Board Member Lisa Watson to ask one of her questions. You there, Lisa? I am. Suzanne, can you hear me? Yep. Thank you. Uh, first, let me just say what an honor it is to meet you, Edgar. I am a I'm a fan. Um, I'm also Native American and a member of the um, Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde out here in Oregon. One of the questions that I have been struggling with in my formal role um, as a leader is equity has been work that seems really closely aligned with progressive movements, more democratic, um, political democratic movements. How can conservative folks who value equality um, contribute to leading equity work and bring other conservatives along? And what role can philanthropy play in, in that work? Uh, thank you, Lisa, for your question. Um, I think that we all have a role to play, progressive, conservative, you know, regardless of your background. Um, because there, there is something about sharing your story and the power of your story to, you know, with someone who has a similar background um, as you. And um, I think if you are um, a person that is um, conservative or um, why not to make those a synonymous thing, because by no means are they, but um, fill in the blank, right? Um, if you have a, a story to tell of, you know, a journey that you've been on and you've experienced joy from being in this work, right? Um, I think you should share that story, share, share that. And uh, we're often, I think, um, shy about talking about race or sharing stories of our journeys because we're so afraid that we're gonna say the wrong thing and we're in this cancel culture now. Right. Um, but what we really, storytelling, like, you know, as indigenous folks, we love to tell stories. Storytelling is the way that we change hearts and minds. And so in your, the power of your personal story and your personal, uh, personal testimony is just huge. And I think for, for me, I, I, I share my vulnerability and my own journey openly of like where I came from and how I've evolved in my thinking because um, I want folks to know we often we're so, you know, like we're so, so divided and what you see in front of you today is like all oh, this super progressive person who um, is talking about racial justice and all of this. 25, 30 years ago, I was a totally different person. Like I was in a different political party. I believe different things. And how did I evolve to be this person? Not that one or the other is bad, right? But um, it came about from me hearing the stories of people uh, interacting, being in spaces like this with colleagues who thought differently from me. And at a certain point, uh, my mind began to open to see the world in a different way. And so I think we all need to be bold enough to share our stories 
and we all need to be open to listening and open our open our hearts and minds. And uh, I'm not done evolving. Who knows who I'll be 25 years from now? Maybe a different person. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's really uh, really the, the the point. And especially for for white relatives on the call, we especially need you to be real uh, allies in this um, this fight for racial justice in this country. Um, this cannot be only the work of indigenous black and people of color. This is a problem that we all have to own and we especially need white folks to be our partners and, and, and helping to push back on, on those mindsets. This is just reminding me of an exercise we do in ALF called seven minute stories, right? Where we sit with people who we don't know yet and we really get uh, vulnerable and we tell the, the stories of our lives in seven minutes, how we, became, how we came to be who we are, right? And it's a very vulnerable experience and it lays a foundation for these, the whole program. And we build these relationships and new understandings from it. I mean, storytelling is the key. I think it's so critical. Um, another question, and I'm sorry, I forget who this is from, but I'm gonna just read it here. Um, one of our attendees, I continue to be saddened by the suicide rate, the depression of Native American communities. In your book, one of the reasons you share that there is a lack of identity for these communities. Um, these communities feel a lack of identity. So how can white dominant culture honor the identity of these communities? How and where do we begin with that? Yeah, this is kind of going back, connected a little bit to our conversation about understanding who we are. Uh, to be Native American and within the United States is you're born into an identity crisis. We are, we are the only race of people who have to prove that we are who we say we are, right? Can you imagine like if someone's like, prove to me you're white or whatever, right? So we have, uh, th th that is like a challenge. And early on, you know, this was something I felt as a young person having to um, prove my legitimacy or prove my identity. And uh, we have, I won't get into all the details of it, but we have a, a, a recognition process in the US government where the US government basically determines if we are legitimate natives or tribes or not. And a president can grant that status and another next president can take it away. And so we're kind of like on the edge every year, like with our identity. And so imagine being in that other box and then have that box be under threat all the time. That's kind of how, how it is. Um, and so I, I do believe that um, where we see high rates of suicide in our community really stem from not only um, a, a disconnection sometimes from our culture and identity, but also um, we have in our society um, ways, uh, you know, uh, uh, racism. And, you know, you think about mascots. Uh, recently, we had a, a major victory with changing the Washington NFL team. And there's research to show like that was a one victory. We still have like 200 more to go because even at the high school level, you know, we are dehumanized in, 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 in many ways and young people internalize this stuff, you know, and it con contributes to feelings of being less than. But I want to say that that um, this situation is not limited to Native communities. Um, we're also seeing like high rates of, of drug abuse and uh, opioids in, in white communities. And I would say that when you look at that problem, you would get to some of the same types of, um, of challenges. I think that um, there is an identity crisis that a lot of those folks are having. Again, I think we all need to go back and be connected to our cultures and to our ancestors and to our original instructions to really know who we are today. Um, the president, the present is, is you know, we're, we're here because of a series of past events <laughs> and uh, we need to know how we got here and who the people were that got us here. 
if we don't know, we're kind of wondrously aiming through the world, um, you know, in a way that is not connected to anything spiritual. And so that's why, uh, you know, it's, it's so important for us to all do that work. I love how you put that. Yeah. Aimlessly wandering in the world unless we <laughs> just a big zombie apocalypse. You I know, know. Right? That's not great. <laughs> <laughs> that's not great. You know, I want to call out, you were talking about really understanding our ancestors and our traditions. Um, and I know Lisa put a comment here. Lisa Jones, I think we answered your question, but your comment was pretty provocative too, which is understanding your ancestors is much more difficult for those of us who are descendants of previous enslaved people. Um, and just holding that and understanding that as well. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I realize that. And I think there's, um, there's work that can be done there. Um, there's beautiful examples of uh, white relatives that have uh, really worked to come to terms with that history that's in their family. And I think not confronting that history in your own family creates a sense of guilt and a weight that you have to carry around. But um, you, you don't have to, right? You can be set free from that if you are able to uh, acknowledge that truth and allow that truth to manifest itself in your life through how you show up as a leader now. And um, it's not something that you have to, um, you know, uh, feel like you are, you can shed, you can shed that guilt and, and be a part of the work for liberation. Yeah. That's, that's wonderful. Jacqueline has a question that I think a few people wanted to ask. Uh, my question, has Edgar seen a process inside foundations that move toward true power sharing and equity for people of color and indigenous peoples? I'm seeing some really inspirational work um, happen. Um, I'll kind of give it examples and then I will critique them in true fashion. But like <laughs> um, more and more people are talking about participatory grant making, which means that a foundation will um, will democratize decision making uh, of, 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 of some resources, you know, to a group of people who might be impacted by that issue or whatever. I think that's fantastic and a, a great way to go. Far too often, though, it's kind of like a pet project in a, in a foundation and ultimately the board still has to decide and sign off on things. So uh, I haven't seen a foundation really turn over all of its resources to that type of decision making. Um, what I also see happening more and more is the um, we're seeing uh, Black, Indigenous, and people of color-led philanthropic infrastructure kind of building up. And I think this is coming from a place where, you know, this mutual aid kind of uh, mindset that we find ourselves in because we know that we cannot count on the federal government or on big philanthropy to save us, like regardless of your background, like we know, like we've got to have our own, our own way. And so, um, you know, there are a number of indigenous led philanthropic intermediaries, black led who um, I actually have one called Liberated Capital where we are an indigenous led um, advisors from black and brown communities and we fund in black and brown communities and we, we have relationships and an ecosystem for getting that capital out. Um, the challenge is for like my project and a lot of those uh, types of um, uh, other types of intermediaries is we don't have the capital, right? We're raising money, but we're still reliant on, um, you know, high net worth individuals who happen to be white and uh, large, um, big foundations. So, uh, but I do see more foundations of people coming around to understand that they will never have the same type of relationships or understanding of these communities. And so investing in these intermediaries is a good um, step forward. The last thing I'll share, because this is super cool to me, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, when I wrote the book and the book came out in 2018, I, I said this one thing in the book that was really right. This is probably why I won the radical award. <laughs> I said foundations should actually take like 10% of their endowments and just hand it over to people of color, basically, like, you know, as a form of reparations. And I randomly chose the number 10 because I was raised in the Christian church where you gave 10% of your income to tithing. So I was like, why not pay a tithe, right? Um and, you know, I never imagined that anyone would actually do that. I, it was just trying to inspire like a different way of thinking. There are a number of foundations who are actually doing it, <laughs> um, who are taking their endowments, uh, one in Canada, giving it to First Nation people to create their own native-led foundation. Another foundation I'm advising is taking 10% of its corpus and is going to pay it out in the form of reparations to individuals. And so it's... Um, there, there's, there's, there's really, really cool things happening that I'm inspired, but we have, you know, of course, a ways to go. Mm-hmm. That was fascinating. I know in Silicon Valley too, as COVID has hit, you know, one of the things that I've been inspired by is just this movement to raise a financial assistance sort of emergency fund to keep people from being homeless. And it's literally going to an organization that takes it straight to and gives it straight to people. So it's this very quick, uh, not a lot of red tape pass through. Uh, yes. to get it to the people that need it the most now to keep them housed. And I just, I'm appreciating the the barriers and the red tape being lifted more and more. Uh, I think, um, you know, necessity is the mother of invention and we, we, we're being pushed to move quickly. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great question from Michelle Liu, who's a senior fellow from the Silicon Valley chapter. How do we prioritize funding systemic change versus funding basic needs for food, shelter, et cetera? right now. And I can certainly relate to this one, Michelle, just because, I mean, the need is huge. We're in the state of an emergency right now. So um, we know that we have to, we have to put a bandaid on the problem, but how do we actually prioritize funding, changing the system so we can avoid the problem in the first place? And what's the role of government in these priorities, do you think? Yeah, I would say to that question that you know, I, I think organizations that are providing basic needs are like the best advocates. And so I think that they don't have to be uh, separated. I think that there can be nonprofits who are, you know, providing housing, providing food, providing those direct types of safety net services, but they also can be um, advocates. And so I think we should fund them to do both. Um, mm-hmm. I do think that we um, are um, overextended in terms of uh, looking at uh sort of, you know, basic needs versus systemic change. I think we've got to, we, we need to do more on the systemic change side. Basic needs, um, you know, should be covered by the government, right? Is I, I think the government has a role to play. The reason that f- foundations are having to step up and fill that gap is because we are cutting SNAP benefits and we're cutting, you know, we don't have adequate healthcare and we don't have all the types of things uh, for education and, and so forth and so on that we should have in this country, the richest country in the world. So I've always kind of thought philanthropy should be um, ideally this laboratory to like fund innovative new things that the government can take to scale um, or that we could be a place to really invest in things that the government won't invest in like community organizing perhaps or building power in communities. Unfortunately, we've got, we found ourselves having to fill this gap because of the, uh, the failure of the government, honestly, to provide some of those basic needs. So it's kind of this catch 22. Um, and I don't fault any foundation or fund that is stepping up, especially right now in the, this moment to uh, support basic needs. Um, but I, I, what I would say is that we zoom back and we actually know what's happening in philanthropy. 
um, you know, whether folks are funding basic needs or advocacy, the majority of philanthropic capital is funding nobody. <laughs> like the money is actually in the banks. It's in Wall Street and investments. So if anything, I would support moving more money out the door, whether to, to, to whatever issue um, is it, something that needs to happen. On average, foundations are only paying out um, about six to 8% um, of, of resources to communities. And the, the largest chunk of philanthropic capital you all may know now is in donor advised funds who have no payout requirement. Many great community foundations are supporting payout, but um, that is a challenge that we have is that we have millionaires, people with wealth, corporations actually putting money away, getting major tax breaks and then that money not benefiting the public at all. And so that's one place where we can really push for some change. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Just about two minutes left here. You know, I just want to call something out that you said, Edgar, and I kind of raced over it, but I think it applies to all of us in this moment as uh, everything is so highly politicized. We're very divided as a country. You see how the votes fell in this recent presidential election. I mean, you said, I was a different person 25 years ago, and here I am today, right? We're all on this journey of evolution, right? We evolve as we learn, we evolve as we read, and as we know people who have very different life paths. Uh, than we do. Um, it changes how we make decisions. And so I just want to honor your courage in saying that outright. I think it's, it's so important that we have, we individually have to say that out, out loud too. We change, we evolve as we learn and grow. Um, before we jump to our, our uh, dialogue section here, I, I, I want to ask for what is your call to action for people on, on, the, uh, on the call today that are inspired and more curious? What's your call to action for us? I mean, definitely keep doing the work, y'all. This is this is a work of a lifetime, and don't be afraid to, um, you know, uh, to make a mistake or you know to step in it. This is messy work, and there's no checklist. Um, and and you know, we we just all have to be bold. I, I do feel like there's a window of opportunity for us to, um, you know, again, regardless of your political leanings, our country is off track the way they were divided, and we have got to find some way to come back together. Um, as a community. And I feel like there's a window before us to find a way to do that. Um, And uh, we have to call out hate and white supremacy and all of those things and bring forward um, examples and models and and lead like just like in this cohort where we actually can come together and and share the space, uh, share, you know, give space for the brilliance of other people, um, respectfully disagree and those types of, you know, practices that we, we you know, um, have kind of lost our way around and uh, kind of pushing back on all of the, the, the division because that's exactly a byproduct. Again, I'm going back to colonization. This is exactly um, what uh, the, the forces of evil, um, whoever those people are in those dark smoky rooms making these plans. Uh, <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is a byproduct that we have scarcity mindsets that we turn on each other. We've got to get back to seeing the common humanity and decency in each other and respect each other. All my relations, we are all inherently connected and we have to find a way to love each other. Um, through all of this mess. And I do believe that 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 love can transcend, you know, this dark moment that we find ourselves in. Edgar Villanueva, thank you so, so, so much for your time. Messy work it is, but we're glad you're in it with us. I'm glad to be on this journey with you. Thank you for having me.
ALF joins and strengthens diverse leaders, creating and supporting networks for good. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and encourage you to subscribe to The Dialogue on iTunes or SoundCloud. To learn more about ALF, visit us online at alfsv.org.